Thanks for checking out the generic podcast this Sunday afternoon. On today's episode, we have Dylan Brown, an indie filmmaker and producer. And in this episode, we talk a lot about our shared passion for practical effects, some of the things that he's learned along the ways of being a filmmaker and going on this new journey. You can catch both of his films out right now over on Tubi, both The Devil's Children and The Flock. So I highly suggest if you enjoy this episode to go and watch both of those films and you'll see the difference that we're talking about. I'd also like to mention that the latest installment in that universe, Ghost, is up on Kickstarter right now. And as of the airing of this show, there are 41 days to go. And even though they basically hit their goal overnight, uh, their campaign is still going to be live for quite some time, probably for the duration of those 41 days. So if you're interested in helping them get this third project done, I'll go ahead and leave the link in the description down below so you can click on that head on over to Kickstarter and and help out another indie filmmaker so without wasting any more of our time here today let's go ahead and get into the show ladies and gentlemen welcome to the generic podcast we talk about everything horror science fiction sometimes fantasy I'm good. I'm glad we uh, we linked up finally. Hell yeah! Thanks for coming. I'm glad everything. I know we had a, a couple different complications before, but I'm glad everyone's okay. You know, you got the got the the car situation fixed and everything like that. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you know how it goes. It's uh, in the. I work for the uh, military uh, as a uh, civilian, but okay. they always talk about on base. They always say uh, it's a visit from uh, Private Murphy or uh, Murphy's Law. So seems like there's always something in the way that's going to mess up this filmmaking thing for me. So why not mess up a podcast appearance too? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just life, you know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, the unexpected happens. So, right. Yeah. So before we get into, um, your, your film career here and everything, I was just, uh, I was just curious more about, uh, you know, what got you into horror and, you know, doing all these, uh, like working on these, on the, all these different movies and everything. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I was always into scary movies, like as a little kid and I had friends that would watch stuff and be so traumatized. It's, you know, telling us at school, like, Oh, my older brother or sister was watching nightmare on Elm street and, you know, and they're terrified of Freddy Krueger. And I was always like the weird second grader that was like, what I want to see, like, that sounds cool. Um, and I always, I, it's weird. I can remember as far back as I can remember, I've always had a fascination with how things were done in film. And mm-hmm. so if I was watching a movie and there would be some really cool creature or some awesome makeup effect or like a gore effect, I always wanted to know, I, I guess I was like more fascinated with how did they do it versus, oh, that's really gross on screen, you know? And so for me, I was really never bothered by the visuals, I was always really intrigued with like the engineering behind. Um, and so I was always running around with my dad's old big giant camera with the stuck the VHS tape in it. And, uh, I grew up on a ranch and so we had a bunch of property and I was always running around and filming things and there'd be like a dead cow. And I'm like doing avant-garde zooms on it with like weird music as if, you know, I was making some really cool statement, you know, about death or something, you know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) But it was funny, you know, I just was always attracted to horror. And um, as I got older, I think I had a more, um, I guess, like a bigger love affair with horror, because it always seems to me like horror movies uh, and books, I guess, but movies more so 
seem to almost be like a time capsule of like what's going on in the world. And it's like, you can watch movies in the eighties and you can tell that there were things like, uh, you know, tensions with other countries going on at the time. And, 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 uh, there were a lot of like stuff with the Berlin wall and all that stuff. And you go to the seventies and you have like satanic panic was a big thing. And it always seemed to really kind of reflect like real fears that we had, in the country or in the world really and it's like horror to me was the only genre that was like ballsy enough to always tackle those things mm-hmm. um and so I've, I've always just loved it because you can put on a horror movie and and almost look at it as like a history book as to what was going on at the time and um i guess just like the fascination just grew from there to start reading about it and learning about it and, and just devouring anything i could and i felt like the best way to really devote myself to it was not just watching the movies, but trying to put my own spin on it, make them myself. And, and here I am. Yeah. I mean, you got, uh, was it two, two films. Now you have the devil's children and the flock, both of which I directed. And then um, you did producer work on what's in the dark and on Mothman. So, I mean, yeah. So, um, just to backtrack on that a little bit. So devil's children, uh, the flock. And then I actually just sold uh, Tahoe Joe, a third one. It's a Bigfoot movie uh, to distribution. I actually just put the pen to paper this morning. So it's officially sold and it's going to go out. Um, and then as producer, yeah, I was on uh, the Wendigo Mothman. And then what's in the dark actually has been unfortunately canceled. Um, it's going to probably end up, being spun into something else um we i was with a group called the horror dads and um we're still working somewhat together but with being so far spread out across the country like i'm in nevada a couple of the other guys there's like you know north carolina and uh michigan and illinois we were starting to realize that it's so hard to collaborate on a film together without a pretty hefty budget And so we announced the movie, we had all the plans, everybody was getting ready to go. And then it just seemed like this back to the Murphy's law thing. Um, It's like one thing after another was making, you know, somebody's uh, anthology segment because that's what it was. It was an anthology movie. And so somebody would have a complication and their segment would be like delayed. And then I would be planning and then mine would have a complication. And then the next guy, and it got to the point where we were saying, we were stressing so hard about it. Um, that we figured it would be easier for all of us to just make our own content, put it out under that banner, the horror dad's banner. Um, but we just really aren't ready. I think to, to collaborate on a single project until we can get some better funding. Um, because like the way that I shoot, it's very much a weekend warrior thing. You know, I work, uh, uh, 40 hours a week and then on the weekends, I'll grab a camera, get with my crew and we'll film what we can. And, uh, everybody in the horror dads is a lot like that and so we were kind of trying to figure out okay if we're going to get this movie done when can each person film their segment and then when can we plan to put this thing out and it just seemed like we were like okay well this is going to take two years to do this right now um and we all had some bigger projects that we already wanted to work on and nobody really wanted to delay their features to work on short films so unfortunately what's in the dark has kind of been shelved for now um and uh, I'm probably as much as I'm still going to be working with those guys on some things, I'm really you know, going to be focusing on my personal brand, the horror nerd productions, which is what the other films have been released under. Um, and then just sort of bringing those guys on as producers. And, and uh, really, the, the main reason we got together was to just bounce ideas off of each other right. and to kind of help motivate each other, because when you get in on the indie world, there's a million excuses on why you shouldn't complete a project. It's like, you always find a reason to say, I can't do this. I can't get enough money to do this. I don't have the equipment, blah, blah, blah. But when you have a group of people together talking about it, it always seems to make you feel a little bit better to notice that a, they're in the same boat and B, we just push each other to say like, you can do this. Hey, I, I've got some resources. I can send you camera equipment if you need, or, you know, I worked with this actor and they're willing to travel. So let me get you their contact info, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, yeah, that's the unfortunate side of indie filmmaking is sometimes those projects are just not going to happen. Uh, but we are really excited about the future and, and the uh, features that are coming. So, um, you know, there's a yin and a yang to everything. 
So how would how do you feel about you know because I know that you're, you're saying like this so this one got shelved um, and it is like it is a hard thing to do especially when you're um, in the indie market and like you're saying with uh, you know just gathering the resources sometimes can be like a really kind of that could be like the biggest hurdle is like can we get all the times solidified can we get all the equipment mm-hmm. ready um, and like what happens if there's a delay right like you know you're like if you have this big budget for a film and you all show up and then it's like a day that's supposed to be sunny out for your shoot and then it's just overcast and rainy and it's like crap it's like this is the only day we have to Mm -hmm. do so in that aspect what is like one of the things i guess just on the films that you have worked on and completed what would you say was one of like the biggest hurdles in that sense where you were like is this going to come together? Like we have everything else going, but it's like, then there's just that one part where you're like, crap. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get this done. Honestly, the, the devil's children is one of those movies that I can't even watch it. It's like, I don't even want to go back and look at it because I see all of the first time filmmaker flaws and I see all the things that were really against us. And one of the big things uh, in relation to what you're asking is we had locked down a location. It was this small little house to film in uh, out in the middle of the desert. And we get a phone call about halfway through the production from the owner saying, Oh, I'm coming home early and you can't use my property anymore. And so we went from having like two weeks to film it to one week. So all of my production time was cut in half. Um, And so then the film ended up suffering runtime. I had actors that couldn't be in it because they were going to be there the second part and now they can't you know because they've got jobs and other things going on um so it was it was horrible right you know i'm panicking on how we're going to get it done now we got it done and it ended up getting to tubi which is you know really cool and i'm excited about that but i just it's just not a movie that i'm proud of because it was never the movie i wanted to make it was so far from my original vision that it's really hard for me to actually even watch that movie without having a lot of disdain for it Mm -hmm. um but I also learned from some other filmmakers who have uh, been in the business for a while uh, and have actually had some success. I, that's the nice thing about this is the community in the indie world is actually really, really tight. Um, and so I don't know if you're familiar with the film Horror in the High Desert. No. Mm-mm. Okay. It's on Amazon yeah. right now. And I highly suggest checking that one out. It's really cool. Uh, it's a mockumentary uh, film. And the director, Dutch Marriage, he... Um, has been really cool with kind of uh, just being there for me and talking me through some of the stuff because he's been through a lot of the things I have, you know, I'm going through. Um, And he gave me the best advice ever. And I took that for the next film. And the advice was when you're writing your script and you're putting your film together, he said, write what you know you have, like what you absolutely know you have. Don't write about something that you think you might be able to get or that you hope you can get. He said, write your script to whatever you have that nothing can screw it up. Mm -hmm. And then from there, if you get other things, those are bonuses and then you can expand, you know, whatever. Um, But that was one of my biggest flaws on the first film was I was writing in a particular location and and a lot of stuff had to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the owner wants to come home early and guess what? I've got no location. Um, And so when I did the flock, I did that. I basically wrote the script, but I kept everything very, very vague. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it was just like you said, if the original script had a sunny day or whatever, but then we go to film and it's raining. Well, the script was allowing me to account for the rain. It didn't matter. It was not a a crucial plot point that it was raining instead of being sunny. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just had to be as fluid as absolutely possible and transition that to the one I just finished Tahoe Joe. Uh, I went completely unscripted with that one. Uh, the guy I worked on it with Mike, he and I basically wrote out a two page kind of synopsis of what we wanted the film to be like. Mm-hmm. And then we just started filming and we said, you know what, we don't know when we're going to be able to film. Uh, I'm over here in, in Nevada, but I'm close to California, excuse me. And um, we're by the Sierra Nevada mountains. And so it can snow a lot over here. And I think people, they think Nevada. So they start thinking like Vegas, well, we're like way Northern and uh, you can have just frigid temperatures and snow. And we had snow in May last year. Um, 
and so it was one of those things where we're like, we can't have a script to really worry about that because we don't know what the weather's going to do. We don't know if we'll even be able to film this week. So we may not be able to film until the next week. So we just went with it. We were just inventing characters as we were meeting people that wanted to be involved. And that was the nice thing with shooting a, a mockumentary and found footage type was we could bring those people in. And with those films, you don't really need a lot of backstory sometimes because if you're looking at people's home shot footage, there's always those kind of jarring cuts from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actually used it to our advantage. And I think that that has sort of turned into my bread and butter. And I love making found footage movies. There's, there's a great market for it. Um, but I have like a very big time love for cheeseball eighties movies. So I'm trying to find a way to combine those two and found footage was usually all about like, let's make this as real as possible and trick the audience. And I'm looking at it as the Blair Witch doesn't work anymore. It worked great back when it came out, but everybody knows found footage is a genre now and you can't trick audiences into thinking it's real. But what I can do is inject my love of, 80s movies into that genre and sort of make this kind of hybrid where it's it's home shot footage but it has like the sometimes over the top characters and dialogue and and um and it's just the kind of movies i like to watch so i figured why not blend the two together and and it's been working for me to to go about it that way oh yeah man i mean found footage films is like i think it was one of those things where so it's like i never watched the Blair Witch Project and I get a, I always get a lot of flack for that people are like how, how can you you know you call yourself like a horror nerd and you've never seen that film and like you know it's like it's in the woods and it's like you're from New England you should be watching things that are like scary and in the woods and I'm like well I mean it wasn't shot in Massachusetts so like that's all yeah. right and they're like no like you gotta you gotta watch it and I was like okay so I mean sometime I'll, I'll probably get um into you know the Blair Witch and and see what it's all about but I mean I think the the movie that really got me into found footage was VHS oh yeah absolutely yeah and uh so when I was watching I was sitting down and I was watching Devil's Children I was like the two big vibes that I got from that was VHS and then like going back (laughs) and thinking about like when I was in high school and like trying to make films and I was always like that, that like one of those kids that was in the, the AV uh, group. And I was just like, I want to make a horror film. And everyone else is like, you know, they just, they're there because they don't want to go to like PE or something else. Yeah. Like they, want, <laughs> they want that easy credit. And they're like, oh, well, we'll just like go ahead and like make like a, a video of people dancing or something. So I made a whole bunch of projects that were literally just people just dancing and all the stupid stuff. Cause you, you always had to like be like partnered up with somebody. Um, but then like I had scripts off to the side and I had a, this professor and uh, I, I guess high school, they're not professor, teacher. Um, and so I like give him scripts on the side and he's like, I like where you're going with this, but also like, this is not appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, We can't because, you know, we'd have like the, um, you get at the like the end of the year and you have like the the little festivals that they have with everybody that's in the AV and they go ahead and like show all their films and they're like yeah even if you could like we can't show this like this is is violent (laughs) (laughs) so um like I don't even think I have any of those scripts anymore I think they're just kind of like lost somewhere um but I've always thought of like because I remember some of them I thought about going back and like trying to write some of them um, and get together with some of my buddies and like trying to make another film or something. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting what you're saying about uh, the devil's children, because it's like, I watched it and I, I loved it, but it's like hearing it, the story from your end and how you ran in all these complications and everything. As soon as you started talking about that, I was like, well, what if, or, you know, and maybe this is just something that you've already thought of before, or maybe you're just done with it. But um, I feel like that's one of those films where it's like there's enough lore in there where if you wanted to, you know, after a few movies, have you thought about going back and exploring that atmosphere more and that like that devil character more in like another film? Or So uh, did you not watch The Flock yet? I have not watched The Flock yet. Okay, so The Flock is actually the film that I wanted to make that The Devil's Children could have been. So basically what happened was I was going to move on and do something else. And it was eating at the back of my brain saying, 
devil's children is not what you wanted. Right. And um, so what really what happened and this would be I guess this will probably put into into perspective for you um, in a really interesting way when you do end up watching the flock is that the original script for the devil's children was called the flock. Um, I'm looking at the script and I'm like, bro, you cannot make this movie right now. Like, what are you thinking? You don't have the resources to do this. So the devil's children main plot is those kids going to the party, you know, and messing around and, you know, bringing up the spirit. And then, um, and I won't talk about the ending for anybody watching this, so it's not blown, but obviously um, leads to some pretty bad consequences for those kids. Right. (laughs) Well, that was like a small part of the flock was going to open with that party scene and then basically that little maybe 10 minute opening was going to lead into a much bigger story so i cut that part from the script and said well i'll just expand that into the devil's order to make it its own movie um and it seemed like it was going to work until the whole you know losing half our production time and all that stuff uh so when i i switched gears for a minute was going to do something else and it was bugging me, bugging me, bugging me. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go make the flock. I have to. Mm-hmm. So the flock is actually a prequel uh, in a sense to the devil's children kind of leading up to those events mm-hmm. uh, in some aspects uh, because the devil's children obviously is told from the interview sequence and then a year prior to the, the footage that's actually watched when they're at the party. So yeah. I wanted to tell the story about that year in between those two sections where this huge event happened and so the flock can very much be watched on its own because i did enough backtracking to make it make sense without even seeing the devil's children and that was almost a an ego thing for me to be like i don't always want to push that movie so i'll just say watch the flock and you'll get everything you need to know but the lore was definitely there and i wanted to push that especially with the the very biblical moloch aspect Mm -hmm. with that demon i always thought that was such a very scary eerie kind of story and uh the whole you know child sacrifice thing for this demon and all that stuff and so i expanded on it big time in the flock like huge and even that one started to take on a life of its own where i had some characters these uh these mercenaries that work for the church essentially the church hires these mercenaries to go take out cults and so we alluded to that like places like jonestown or waco texas all that were actually (laughs) disbanded by these catholic church funded mercenaries that were going in and taking these people out to stop demonic you know possession or things from happening um and they were a really really tiny little part of the flock but i got with these guys that played our characters they're all prior military so we've got like army and a green beret and we had a guy from the navy and all these people that were in the military that wanted to be in this movie Mm -hmm. and i was like man the story really here is these church funded mercenaries like this is the one i want to go with even further so the flock is done uh it's doing great it's going to hit tubi here pretty soon which i'm really excited about uh and then mike and i are actually going to start production in january on uh mike is sorry mike uh rock he's one of my mercenaries in that movie and then he's the guy that i did tahoe joe with um Mike and I are actually going to go tell a story within that universe of the devil's children, uh, just about the church mercenaries now. And it'll be fully focused on that aspect. And Ooh. so we've got more biblical demons coming down. And, and so in a sense, like it all connects to that original little film, but it's branching off now into this really cool universe. I think we've created that can almost go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, it's like, I just, it's such a love hate for me with that first movie. And I I think almost every director probably has that though. Uh Well, I mean, especially with, so with the the devil's children though, even though, you know, like you can look back and you can see all the different flaws in that film. I think it's pretty cool now that it's like, you're expanding this universe and it's like, so now for, you know, the viewers, it's like they get this this story and on this lore and it's like you're answering questions and getting more questions um, announced and like, you know, just building all this stuff up. But now when you go back, it's like because you're building this lore, it's like now you can see this is what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do. And now I'm doing this and now we can do this. So for you, you know, it's a whole different journey versus the viewer. So that, that those kinds of things are always pretty cool when I hear about people starting something out and being like you know we had complications so this that or the other thing didn't work but 
next movie we started doing all these things and then it's like you start seeing like oh okay well that worked in this film let's try and like push that envelope a little bit further and see what else we can do with that kind of stuff so like seeing it as a as a as a filmmaker must be you know very rewarding to you in that sense it is cool it's it's been nice to have people who um you know didn't like the devil's children when i posted it in these different groups and stuff saying you know like i couldn't get into it or it was just so amateurish blah 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 well then i sent them screeners for the flock and i said hey i remember your comments and i'm not here to talk any crap or anything but i want to send you my next film uh because honestly those kind of criticisms they they hurt you know but they help and Mm -hmm. you just have to have a very thick skin and it was really cool to send that to a bunch of the people who didn't like the first song and said whoa like this is a huge step up and i'm really really excited to see where you go from here and um yeah i mean really it is about the growth i it's like any I, any director you look at. I, I'm, a, I'm a giant Steven Spielberg fan. I mean, I, I love Spielberg's movies. I think the guy, there's a reason he's like the top dog, you know. But if you go look at his first stuff, it's rough compared to where he's at now. And so it's like knowing that those guys, those gods of the industry, they're in the same boat, you know, and their, their first things had the problems and, and don't look anything visually like what their stuff does now. And, um, it just comes from experience and learning and a willingness to take those criticisms because a lot of what I'm noticing a lot of people in the indie film world, they think they can go make a movie and then they do it and they think they're ready for it, but they're not. And when Mm -hmm. people start giving them criticisms and suggestions and things, they get so upset and I get it because you pour your heart and soul into these things and then you have to put it out for the very mean internet to rip apart, you know? And, mm-hmm. and even if the film is widely liked, there will still be trolls and people who will talk crap about it. And it's just, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, but yeah, on a personal level, watching my three films so far, I love watching the progression. And um, so, you know, yeah, like I say, it is difficult for me to recommend my first movie, but if people watch them in order, it is always very cool to hear people say, whoa, I have seen like an exponential growth Mm -hmm. Um, and it's only been a year's time. I I cranked out three features in in one year. Um, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody because it was way too much work. And I'm actually going to dial it way back next year. Um, Mm -hmm. Pretty much just going to work on one and then start planning for a second one. But I I don't plan to have two shot in a year again. Definitely not three. Um, It's just too daunting of a task and it's, and I've also got a new baby at home and stuff too. So I just, time is like, I don't even know what time is anymore. So like, I don't even know what's day and night. And <laughs> yeah. before, before you know it, you're, you're going to just have to, to, to get the, the baby next year to, to start doing some of the, the call shots, you know, and just yeah. <laughs> get them right well, next there... to action. <laughs> <laughs> One really cool thing is uh, my wife had a, a little boy in her uh, previous relationship before her and I got together and he's nine now and he is so into what I'm doing. And so I think in the next few years, I am going to have a little horror buddy with me. That's going to help on that. Um, and then eventually the baby will get older and then he can hopefully get involved too. And um, so it will, it will make it a lot of fun because I look at the filmmaking thing is it's a very, very glorified hobby for me right now. Yes. Is it generating a little bit of money? It, it is it's really cool and i'm winning some festival awards that's cool some people online you know i'll respond to them and i'm getting these messages like oh my gosh i can't believe the director of this movie i like is talking to me and i'm like i'm just a guy right i'm just a guy but i i've got a career um and a family and stuff that's always going to come first before the filmmaking and so um if i can continue to do this but then bring the family aspect into it i will 100 percent feel like what I'm doing is, is worth it. You know, whether one person sees it or a million, um, just knowing that my, my kids, uh, especially my stepson right now, just like is in awe of what I can do with special effects or things. And he's just like, his mind's blown. And I'm seeing that <laughs> same look that I had when I was watching movies and that whole, like, cause he's always asking me, how did you guys do that? Or did that hurt? Are you okay? Cause I'm in some of my movies. I always do like the Hitchcock cameo thing. Yeah. Um, and I was in Devil's Children. I was the drug dealer at the park. <laughs> um, 
and then in the flock, I have a, a, a role that's a little bit bigger. Uh, but uh, my stepson was definitely worried about my well-being because he was just not quite understanding like how I was going to pull it off and be safe because he sees the end result of it and didn't see mm-hmm. like when I was actually filming it. And so it's funny because he is having those questions. I'm like, Whoa, how did you do that? That looks so real, you know? And, um, so yeah, you know, filmmaking will always be a thing I do, but I'm also not living in a fantasy world where I'm like, Hey, I'm going to be the next Steven Spielberg. You know, if, if the right thing happens, it happens. And if not, I'm just going to keep doing these indie things um, as I can, you know? And, uh, and so three features in one year definitely won't happen again because that was exhausting. And I don't want the movie stuff to start feeling like actual work. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be my escape from, from work. So, so with, you know, like growing, like, you know, now you have like that kind of like generational thing going. So it's like, you're, you're a kid and you're watching this stuff. I mean, I could still remember the first time that I watched, um, the eighties version of the blob and oh, uh, so good. When, they're, when they're crawling up. The, they're trying to escape from it right they go from the movie theater and then they're in the sewer and they're trying to get up, up the ladder there. talk about a scene that as a child that just freaked me out so much because you didn't really see that too often where it was, you're just like oh the kids you know they're gonna be fine you know mm-hmm. and then the blob comes out and it like just latches on one of them and brings it down and like i go back and i watch that whole scene all the time and just remember like as a child i'm like how the hell how did they do that you know and it's and it's just it's such a it's crazy thing and it's like when you're looking at all the practical effects because i'm a huge like practical effects person it's like if if somebody can make like a film that has like this huge budget and they and know they have the time to do practical effects and they go for cgi i'm like like why didn't oh. you do the practical effects thing you know so um like the thing remake yeah yeah. I love the story. <laughs> I love the story in that. Like it was, it was the perfect story to lead into the original or to Carpenter's thing. You know, I was like, they, the writing was perfect for this. You had great characters, and to CGI mask over all of those studio ADI amazing practical effects that they actually made. Because I follow all that stuff on Instagram and I see what they tried to do that was eventually covered in CGI. And that movie dated itself within a month of being out. It was like it already looked bad. And then you go and you watch Carpenters with all the practical stuff. And it's still, I, I was showing my steps on some parts of the thing. Um, and the whole chest scene when they take the defibrillators down yeah. and it bites the guy's arms off. AJ was just like gagging, like, oh my God, it's so disgusting. And I think it's, it has that organic, like wet, gooey feel, you know, versus the CGI where it seems very weightless and it doesn't really have any form to it. You know, it's just like it's animated and it doesn't feel like it's there. And so he was just like completely disgusted by the effects in the original thing. Uh, and then not at all by the stuff in the CGI one. And he even, he even called it out and said, well, this looks fake. And he thought that the one I showed him the carpenter did was the newer movie. And I think we're starting to see that generational shift where practical effects now are much more um, impressive to kids at his age because they've seen nothing but CG and Marvel movies and Disney and everything else. So now when they're seeing large scale puppets and things that are very organic, they're like, Oh my God, that looks so real. Where when you and I were kids, the first time, like I'm a absolute Jurassic park nut, right? Like full blown freak for Jurassic Mm -hmm. park. And when I saw the computer effects in that movie, I could not comprehend what was going on because mm-hmm. I, to make a full-size Brachiosaurus in the same scene that Sam Neill is standing in, I was like, how is that even possible? I don't get it. Um, and so the CGI stuff in like the new Jurassic worlds does nothing for, for my kid. But mm-hmm. when they build the big puppets, he's like, Oh my God, that looks so real, you know? And, right. and I like that that's kind of coming back but I also feel like it's not coming back enough in movies and, mm-hmm. and so many movies are just opting for CG uh, unless you really look at a lot of the indie films that can't pull off the big budget CG. And um, so like when we did Tahoe Joe, I built a Bigfoot suit in my garage, like by hand, like oh, I yeah. straight up bought a ghillie <laughs> suit and painted it and did all this fabricating and, and then got this mask and, painted it did all this stuff and i thought you know 
it's going to take a knock. There's going to be people saying, that's a guy in a big goofy suit. But I would never have been able to live with myself if I went to go make a Bigfoot movie and I did not put a guy in a big goofy suit because like that is Bigfoot movies to me. Um, and uh, I, some of the stuff that's on Tubi, these Bigfoot films, they have a, a horrible CGI ape running around and it's like, well, that's not scary at <laughs> all. Like, are you kidding me? Um, so, yeah, you know, I oh, man, practical is life. And I don't care if I can't pull it off perfectly. I'm always going to strive for as much practical as I can. Yeah. I mean, practical effects. I mean, any movie. Well, I can't say any movie. I would say the vast majority of the films that I've seen where people use practical effects, it always looks just better. You know, um, some of the Star Wars films that all the scenes that they have, I know they use a lot of CGI. But in the scenes where they use practical effects over um, CGI, I always feel like those scenes look a lot better. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, can you make all this like crazy stuff? And like, you can, you know, but it's like, like going back and looking at some of those older films, you know, like Alien is always a really great example. Mm -hmm. Seeing like how they did all like the the strings and how they like manipulated, you know, all the different scenes. It's like, uh, I think in Aliens, when Sigourney Reaver uh, is trapped in the room with the little girl and they're, and they're trying to find this face hugger. And that's one scene I show to people a lot because they're like, now if they did that, that whole thing would just be CGI. But oh, it's like yeah. going back and looking at it and it's like, they got the strings on everything. And it's like, I love that kind of stuff. Cause it's like, if you're, if you know what to look for, you can pause it and be like, aha, you know, <laughs> that's how they did it, you know, but when it, again, you know, like what you were saying, you know, as a kid, and it's like, you're watching this stuff and you're like, this looks terrifying compared to, you know, there's, you know, it's CGI, so it's nothing tangible there, you know, so it's like, even if it looks super realistic, there's something in your mind that's just like, it's something is off, right? Exactly. It's like, what do they call that? The, um, the uncanny valley. It's mm -hmm. like you can have an eye line with a, an actor looking at a creature or something. And it's like, if it's CG and it's a really cool design, yeah, I can be into it. But I still never feel like the actor is really responding to it correctly, only because they're not seeing the end result that I'm seeing as the audience. Whereas you look at Jaws or like Alien, like you said, or Jurassic Park, and those kids in that Explorer, and you have a full-size tyrannosaurus rex blowing its head through the top of the sunroof yeah. i mean there is visceral fear on those children's faces um because it's a it's a twelve thousand pound animatronic creature that is mimicking in real life uh what that thing could actually do to a car and um i just i, I totally agree it's always lacking something um i am like admittedly not much of a marvel fan i like some of the stuff some of the weirder ones like i think the doctor strange stuff's really fun and um but it's like thanos who when i was watching or, or um reading comics or playing video games or whatever he was this terrifying bad guy and then i'm i'm seeing him in the movies and i'm like it's purple josh brolin like i just don't even <laughs> i was never once fearing from him at all this big cgi character right. and i always felt like if they had built an animatronic head for Josh Brolin to wear and had this big costume, I think it would have been so much better and more effective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, unfortunately it seems to be a lost art and, mm -hmm. and I get it because it's very time consuming. It's very expensive to make those things and you need such a huge crew to pull it off. But it feels like now with crews being bigger and than ever, uh, and I get it. They're on the computer side of things, but we have so many resources if they were able to pull that stuff off in aliens and predator and all that, why are we not doing at least some more practical effects? And like you brought up star Wars, I am really happy in the new star Wars movies that they did inject a lot of real puppets and stuff, because I totally agree. Those scenes stand out for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in the new star Wars films, like that I didn't like. Oh yeah, same. Uh, I wouldn't say it was like my favorite saga, but one of the big things that stuck out to me has and will always be the fact that they still went back and they're like, "Look, like we have the budget, we have the crew, 
we know it's going to be more expensive and take longer to do, but we're still going to do it because it fits that aesthetic. When you go back and you look at the old Star Wars films, a lot of that stuff was practical effects. So it's like going back Absolutely. and pulling that stuff and putting it, injecting it into new films, acknowledging, you know, it's like, you know, we have the, the technology to do it, you know, um, it's like, why, why not? And especially I feel like with the, the Marvel films, cause I'm, I'm in the same boat. Um, and sorry for all the Marvel fans that are out there. Um, I love a lot of the comic books. I grew up watching like the old um, Marvel uh, cartoons, you know, where it was just like the panel with like their mouth moving. And then if they were running, it was just kind of like a, a, a picture of them kind of just like bouncing up and down. And, you know, it's just like these like short little kind of, it was, it, it was more like watching um, a comic on TV, you know? So it's like, I grew up on that kind of stuff. And then it's like, I started getting into um, some of the Marvel movies and, and the way that I've always described them is I was listening to an, another podcast and they had described it this way, where it's very much the, the films follow very distinct process the same way that the Power Rangers did, right? Uh-huh. So it's very much like you, you get your established scene and your setting going and then you introduce the baddie you know and then they send down like the putty creatures right so they send their minions down and then like they fight the minions and then the big baddie shows up and right and then it's either either they fight the big baddie and they win or the big baddie has to leave and then it's like they have this like recoup period and then the big baddie comes you know bigger and badder and then like, they fight him and that's it and then you get next movie and it's rinse wash and repeat and I've been noticing one of the big things now with the Marvel films, because um, I, I work with a couple of people who are huge into that kind of stuff. And um, they're like, oh, well, there's so many projects now that they're doing that the CGI is starting to look terrible. And I'm like, what do you think would happen if they use practical effects? And they're like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, what are practical effects? And I'm like... <laughs> Like if you if you use like actual actual props, you know, like what you're saying, like just build a suit if you need to use a little bit of CGI or something to like, you know, erase the zipper or something. Like yeah, that, you know, that's fine. Um, but just like making that more tangible thing, like what you're saying with Jurassic Park. Imagine if they didn't use that animatronic dinosaur. You know, I feel like half of the fear. And why, especially with the first Jurassic Park, it works so well is because you're not as a as as somebody who's like acting in that film and you're looking up at this creature, you know, it's not real, but it's tangible. You can reach out and you can touch it and you're in, trapped in this tr- truck <laughs> with this animatronic thing looking at you, and it looks so much more realistic, you know, if you can reach out and touch it. You know, and, and you have to keep telling yourself this, it's not real versus yeah. if there's, if it's CGI, you know, it might just be like another person, like on top of the, the car, just being like, and then they go in and, and switch everything. And it's just like the, that tension level isn't there. Yeah. I think, uh, I want to say it was Thomas Jane in deep blue sea was saying that he was jealous of all the actors that got to be in the scenes with the CGI sharks, because when he had to be in the water with the animatronic one, he was like, at any moment, this thing could go like haywire and actually kill me. Like if it freaks out in the water here. And he's like, I got to ride on this thing's back and everybody else gets to be in there with like nothing. And he's like, I want that job. I don't want to be in here with like a 10,000 pound mechanical shark that could just go haywire in the water, you know? And, mm. um, and so, yeah, I think that that does a lot have, um, the practical effects have a lot to do with what the actors can do. And, and then circling back to alien um, I know the famous story with the chestburster sequence uh, when that one, uh, that one uh, female character, I cannot remember her name. I mean, she like recoils when that chestburster comes on, she's blasted with blood and she's famously quoted as saying that Ridley Scott did not say at all what was going to happen. She mm-hmm. did not have a clue and then here comes this disgusting thing and it blows blood everywhere. And her reaction is like a hundred percent real. Uh, yeah. Veronica Cartwright, I think is who that is. Um, and you can just, you can see it, you know, you can see it on her face that, that even she was grossed out by the scene. And I think that just helps the audience feel so much more 
you know, about what's going on. Um, and so like when we did the flock, I had to have this demon. Um, and I'm like, okay, I don't have the budget to make a good CGI one. It's going to have to be a guy in a rubber suit. And then even then, okay, am I going to have the budget to pull this off? So we danced around it and I didn't show, you know, and you'll see when you see the movie, he's not shown a lot, but I did show him a bit because I was really proud of the creature. Um, And it might have a little bit of a hokey feel that some people think, but for me, it was so rewarding to see an actor fully dressed up in this thing and he's on set and uh, jumping out and scaring people. Um, And so it was just like, I don't have to worry about any kind of enhancements from here. Like we captured this in camera and it was a really, really rewarding experience to do that. And so I'm going to be doing that from here on out. You know, if there, like you said, if there's little enhancements that we can do with stuff, absolutely. But if I can get my hands on a, an awesome mask and some, some gloves and, and build this creature myself, then I'm going to do it. Um, and I'll show you, it's a sneak peek at uh, where we're going with the next movie, but I'll show you the head bust of our, uh, creature that we're going to be working on we're not really hiding this this is not something that's going to be hidden from the trailers because i want to show this thing off but here's uh oh man yeah that is dope and so he's got a big movable mouth and he's got these like quills and things on him and on that that's that is sick yeah yeah it's going to be awesome um i've been working a lot with a company called immortal masks Uh and they make these just hyper realistic things and so we basically put a bunch of the budget into stuff like that. And then I start constructing around it. Um, and so we've got like a six foot, six, 275 pound ex-military guy who's going to play our big guy in this. And so having him on set fully dressed up with this thing on, yeah. I know for a fact that my other actors are going to really be able to react to that. It's going to be really cool. So are you going to, are you doing one of those things where you're not um, kind of like with the chest burster or like when um, like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory, when they didn't tell the children about the, the set and everything, are you going to just kind of one day just be like, all right, we're going to introduce the creature now and just like send them in. Are you, are you planning on doing that? Or? So that's what, that's really funny. Um, probably not in the in the future one that we're doing because everybody's already worked with me before but on the flock there's actually a couple of jump scares that I didn't tell the actors that was going to happen I had I had only had a meeting with the person that was going to deliver the scare Mm -hmm. um and so they had their own instructions they were in the meeting with everybody the team meeting when we were getting ready to cast but I had pulled them aside and said like hey everything I told them don't listen to it you're going to do your own thing and so we actually captured a couple of jump scares uh by um me messing with the crew a little bit and so we did that the problem is they're all privy to that now and mm-hmm. uh, and this next one that we're doing is leaning much much harder into like a horror action kind of film and yeah. so i'm not really going to go super hard with like jump scare things and stuff like that um i'm gonna we're gonna show this bad boy off you know this creature is not really going to be like a super you know hidden thing or whatever um I have some other tricks up my sleeve that I'm going to definitely save, but it's more on the storytelling side. Uh, visually, I, I think that being an indie guy um, with not a huge track record, I have to have stuff in my trailers and on my posters to get people interested in seeing the film. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm going to kind of do what they did in the 80s. I've noticed so many times you look at VHS box art, they just like right on it is the monster. Like we're putting it yeah. on the cover, you know, but that made me like, big my parents to rent right. those movies and so i'm going to do that with this one i'm i'm not really worried about hiding this one mm-hmm. um now with tahoe joe we did we definitely did do that with our bigfoot um and a lot of that was because i knew that our bigfoot suit was was fairly hokey if it was seen in full light so i had to be very careful with what we showed and we really much did the jaws effect where i was uh controlling the lighting a lot and, and uh kind of making it more of a presence you know, more than just a, a visual. Um, but I did have that one, uh, hidden from, it's not going to be in any trailers or anything like that. I definitely want him to stay hidden just because I've worked my butt off on it. I don't want to spoil that, that one. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, 
if I can dress people up in, in big rubber suits and all that stuff, like I'm, I'm doing it, you know, I'm going that way. And, uh, if somebody was to say, Hey, I got a hundred thousand dollars and I want you to make this movie. And I'm like, Oh God, I got to make a dragon in it. Hell yeah. I'm going to spend somebody to do some CGI. Right. You know, like it's not one of those things I'm ever going to be against, but when we're working with five, six, 7,000 bucks, um, I'm most definitely going to go practical and it's just, I'll, I'll live by that sword and die by it if I have to. So I want to just back, uh, backtrack a little bit here. Um, one of the things that we're talking about um, in the beginning of this segment here, um, and you were talking about how um, horror often relates to, you know, what's going on in the world, um, which is why I love the fact that it's like, you can go at any time period, you can go to any country and the horror is very representative of what's going on in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like you can have stuff going on in Europe and the horror is very different than it is in the United States or in Asia. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that uh, really gets me going as far as just one of those like new phrases that I, that I really don't like is that whole elevated horror thing. Oh God, I hate and it. How like everyone is like, Oh, well, you know, this, this movie is, is a really political movie and it's, got a lot of elevated horror themes in it and i'm like what like what do you mean when you say that like is it is it um is is it just something that just like blew your mind that you could like make that connection because it was so very out there of being like yeah this is what this is what we're talking about right like and i feel like that's one of those films like uh like get out when that came out everybody was just like oh it's like such elevated horror and it talks about all these different things that are happening in society so like i wanted to get your kind of take on on how you feel about um elevated horror um being coined as something that some horror does versus uh other horror doesn't and why that's become such a prominent term considering that you know horror has always done that yeah i i'm with you i always hated that term um it's one of those things where like, talking about get out um did I enjoy the movie? Yeah, a lot. I thought it was, it was a great movie. I enjoyed it, but people were making this huge and not just people. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, accredited movie critics and stuff that, that should know this stuff. And they're making this big deal about it as if it's the first movie to ever have that message. And I'm thinking back to George Romero in night of the living dead that had a black protagonist and it was very much a movie about racism. I mean, it's so much in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, it's nothing new at all. And it's like, what, why is that considered elevated in some people's minds? And, and then Night of the Living Dead wasn't, you know, and it's mm-hmm. just, it, it's a very strange, very, very strange outlook. Um, I like a lot of the movies that are, have been kind of coined to that. Like I like Ari Aster's Hereditary. That movie actually scared me. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was a different kind of scaring, you know, he didn't, he didn't have jump scares. He just literally put stuff in frame and the actors just didn't see it for a while. And, and I would see it in the background and it was terrifying to me. Right. Um, but calling that, you know, elevated is really just such a, a slap in the face to all of the horror that came before it, because, you know, they may not have the, uh, the glitz and the glam and they may not have the little critical darling festival awards and stuff. But I think so many of those other movies have had just as much to say, um, but they're looked down upon because they're bloodier or they're cheesier. They don't have the big name actors in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's super, super unfair. And in fact, I actually never liked the term torture porn that came out, you know, when Eli Roth did hostile. And it's like, I don't understand why people thought that anybody was getting off on that stuff. Eli Roth was making a movie um, that had a lot of heavy gore in it, but those movies have been around for a long time. You look at like Fulci and those guys, they were always doing these really gross visuals and things. Um, and, And those weren't torture porn, you know, or whatever. And so it's very, very unfair that these things kind of happen, and, and it's if you notice and i'm sure you'll agree it's like only horror that this ever really gets these labels and these things slapped on them like i don't know when i've seen a 
a drama movie come out that was some Academy Award winning drama that I was never going to watch because it had no interest in me. And it's not being slapped with, you know, well, that's elevated drama, you know, or, right. uh, or that's comedy porn, you know, versus just regular <laughs> comedy. You know, it's like I can laugh at movies like um, Dumb and Dumber and Joe Dirt all day long. Those movies are hilarious to me. But I can also laugh at stuff like, um, you know, Wes Anderson's movies that are really funny in just a very different way. And I don't consider it elevated comedy because it, you know, scratches a different, you know, funny or tickles a different funny bone, I, I should say. Um, so, right, yeah, so I, there's no extreme comedy out there, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't watch a movie and go, oh, that's extreme comedy. Like, if it makes me laugh, it makes me laugh. It's comedic, you know, and um, whether it's a dick joke or a political joke, I can laugh the same at both of them, you know, and it's um, and so, yeah, the, the whole elevated horror thing has always bothered me um, because you get the critical knocks on it that use that term as if other movies don't belong. Uh, VHS is one of them. That movie was panned by a lot of these like bigger critics, you know, Oh, it's just, it's just disgusting and it's trashy filmmaking and this and that. But I like trashy filmmaking. That doesn't make right. me a bad movie viewer because I'm entertained by that. And I can watch Schindler's list and I could watch VHS right after. And I could have two mm. completely different appreciations for the film, or, uh, the filmmaking that went into it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very strange, like looking at the way um, horror is approached by a lot of people. I feel it's kind of it's kind of and I hate this expression, too, but it's very much I feel like it's the black sheep of, of filmmaking. You know, it's like it is even if you go and you see a movie and it's not scary and then people are like, oh, well, that's not horror. And it's just like, well horror doesn't need to jump out and scare you it could be something where you watch it and then a few weeks later you're like "Ooh, like you know like some something happens where it's like you, you have that kind of like weird deja vu where you're just like oh like this didn't happen before but it reminds me of that movie and then you're getting placed in that character's shoes for a second you're like that is that's terrifying you know yeah um, and a lot of horror is really based um on the idea of empathy like the the best horror that i've seen is when you have the characters that you can relate to and you feel for them right it might not even be something that you've ever gone through before or you're ever going to experience but it's the fact that there's something there no matter what the budget is for this film where you're like okay like i can see how that is relatable in some way shape or form and that's what makes it more terrifying you know um I feel like that's kind of the difference between um, I watched a, a Japanese film not too long ago uh, called Grotesque. And it's literally just 75 minutes of this guy just torturing people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was just kind of like, OK, like I don't I don't feel bad for them. Like it's gross, but like I don't I don't feel bad for them at all. You know, and then it's like I go and I watch other movies like you get like the Saw films or um, Hostile, except for part three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like sitting there and it's like watching those and it's just like it's like you don't care but it's like you do because it's like you have that moment where it's like you could insert yourself into that character's shoes and you're like yeah that's freaking terrifying like is it outlandish yes like but is it terrifying it is absolutely terrifying and then yeah. it's like you look at those films and it's like what's going on around those times right so it's like a lot of those like torture torture porn videos as they they would like to to call them you know um this was like right after 9-11 so it's like you have all this stuff coming out in the news about how they're like torturing people and trying to get information and they're doing all these like inhumane things to people and then you start going like for me that was like one of those things where like i was always super into um looking at torture methods um used during wartime and so then you had a lot of people that were going back and they're looking at all these kinds of things like a lot of the different saw devices that you see are based off of you know different kinds of things that people used back in the day and they're just modernized to draw that audience in and it's just like man could you imagine like getting put in like one of those like the, the steel coffins that they have with like the spikes and everything like that's as that stuff is freaking terrifying yeah. You know, and it's like, 
even if you're not using it directly, putting that stuff in a scene, I feel like a lot of people either miss it or they're, they're de desensitized to it because it's like they don't they don't have that either they don't have that connection or they're desensitized to a point where it's just like oh well if, if it's not going to send chills down my spine it's not horror and it's like no that's not what it is so i just have a uh, one final question here and this is something that i like to ask every guest that's on here um out of all the stuff that you've done all the lessons that you've learned and everything so if somebody was getting into um indie filmmaking you know writing directing all that kind of stuff what is a piece of advice that you would want to give to them? Um, hands down, and I it, it may sound like the the cliche one, but it really is like the absolute most sincere advice I could give because it really was what got me started. It's um, if you have any interest in it at all, it's just to do it, to yeah. just go do it, and you you can't have the fears of well, I don't have the equipment. I don't have the actors. And, and I call BS on that. And I say it in an endearing way, but everybody's got a camera on their phone. Mm -hmm. You've got friends, you've got family that can be your actors. You've got a place, whether it's outside or somebody's house or a backyard, wherever, where you, you can make your set. Um, you can go to places like Dollar Tree and thrift stores and you can buy costumes and props and stuff. Um, so it's just to, to just get out there and do it and fail. It's so good to fail. Honestly, there is nothing better than putting a bunch of effort into it. And this is going to sound hilarious, but there is literally, there is no better lesson than putting a bunch of effort into something and doing it and it being a cataclysmic failure and watching it back and laughing and then thinking, okay, but there is a positive that we did here. You know, this, this 20 minute thing that we tried to do, Oh, it's so bad, but Hey, we did, our, our blood effect turned out really cool for the stab wounds. So we, we figured out how to do that. That's awesome. And then you use that and you take that into the next level. And um, so I just say flat out, go for it. I mean, phones are shooting in, in 4k and stuff. Now there's no excuse to not just use your phone for cameras. Steven Soderbergh shot an entire movie on an iPhone. Um, and the first short films I did were all done on iPhones. Uh, I did a Tremors fan film that ended up on bloodydisgusting.com and it ended up now it's being put on some world of death DVD that they're putting out, which is oh, really nice. cool. Um, and I shot the whole thing by myself uh, out in the desert, mm -hmm. uh, shot, cut, edited it in less than 24 hours. And it was just me messing around. Um, but it gave me that confidence that like, Hey, I did, this as a one man army. What would happen if I added a second person next mm -hmm. time? What would happen if I found 10 people? Um, and it just grows from there. So for me, whether it's writing, um, I do a lot of writing. I, I've written a bunch. I've published books and I wrote with Sean, one of your previous guests, Sean Cochran. He and I have written a lot together. And um, so writing, filmmaking, painting, art, I mean, anything, it's just to do it. And um, you don't necessarily even have to show anybody. But if you want to get into it, you have to make a lot of content and, and you have to fail. You've got to fail you've got to have your devil's children moment, really, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of take it back full circle. You have to have that moment where everything seems to go wrong, but you still did it. And eventually um, you'll get to a point where it just feels like nothing's going to get in your way because you'll find a way to, to get over those hurdles. And so really it's just go out and do it. Hell yeah. Yeah. I think that's the biggest step for a lot of people. You know, this, I, I had a, a huge issue with that, like uh, just with, like my writing and now it's like, I have two books that are coming out next year. Um, oh, that's awesome. But it's like sitting down and being like, there's always that like intrusive thought that it's like, nobody's going to like this. You yep. can't do this kind of thing. And it's like, just go ahead, sit down, do it. And you know, like now, like my thing is going to be, what are people going to say about your writing afterwards? But it's like, it's fine. You know, it's like, like you said earlier, you know, nobody is, nobody is not going to say something like there's always going to be like the trolls that are just going to be saying some bullshit. And then you have like the people that are actually going to critique your stuff. It might yeah. be harsh, but it's like, okay, yeah, like I need to fix these issues. You know, if 30 people say the same thing about a certain part of the film or the book or the game or, you know, whatever else it is that you're creating. And it's like, that is the kind of stuff that you can go ahead and take and, and use. Absolutely. Um, um I've always said I would much rather have those really constructive criticisms 
over people just fluffing it and saying, oh, I loved it. And it's like, don't just tell me that because we're talking here. That doesn't help me at all because then I'm going to make the same mistakes that, you know, in the back of your mind, you just, you were thinking about, you just didn't want to say. And so I've always told people, be very honest. And, um, you know, there's a way you can go about it without being a jerk. Um, And most of the internet doesn't know that, but it's okay. Um, Because really at the end of the day, um, I imagine you have the same feeling with your writing or with me with the filmmaking or when I'm writing, it's an outlet for myself and I'm doing it for me. Um, and frankly, I don't owe anybody anything. I don't owe an audience member anything that they have to love my movie. Um, all I have to try and do is entertain and then take, uh, any kind of criticisms and, and elevate those, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and try and, uh, and write the ship. And, um, even if I don't agree with them, like you said, there may be things where a lot of people may not like something. And if I, I'm like, you know what, damn it. I like that. I'm going to stick by it, you know, uh, and I'll, and I'll always defend my work. Uh, but that definitely doesn't mean I'm not going to close myself off from growth either. So just, uh, before we part ways here, is there anything that you would like to plug anything that you're excited about coming out or, um, well, um, yeah, it's just, uh, the flock is going to be hitting to be here pretty soon. It is currently on, uh, the POV horror app and wicked horror TV, which are also uh, available like through Amazon fire stick and Roku and things like that. Um, but it'll be hitting Tubi, So it'll be for free, which is really cool. Uh, I'll have some ads and stuff like that, but those you and I grew up in an eight day when, you know, we'd watch things with commercials. And I know like my nine-year-old is always like, what the heck is this? Why is the movie stopping? <laughs> um, but uh, so that'll be coming out. And then uh, Tahoe Joe, it hit distribution when it's going to come out. I don't really know, but uh, if anybody wants to just follow my Instagram or the Facebook page, it's just horror nerd productions. Um, I'll have updates and stuff on there. And then there's also the horror dads productions thing where they can follow and get updates on things like the Wendigo and Mothman film that are also coming out. Um, Mothman got picked up on a big distribution deal. So I'm really happy for the director uh, Joshua Brucker, who did that one. It's going to Amazon and, and Tubi and some things. And then Wendigo has been signed. It's just, uh, we don't know when it's coming out. It's on a, a much kind of further out schedule, mm-hmm. but probably a good thing so we can space some things out. Um, but that one will also be hitting distribution too. So um, we're, we're making moves. Hell yeah, man. I'm, I'm excited to see all these different films and see what you all got going on. So we'll get you some screeners for sure. Hell yeah, man. I look forward to it. Awesome. So well, so I really appreciate it, man. Yeah. It was good to have you on the show, Dylan. Thank you so much for coming out and taking some time out of your day to talk about horror and your works and everything. And, uh, and so we'll see you in the future. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Generic Podcast. If you're interested in checking out any of the films, you can head on over to Tubi, where you can watch The Devil's Children and the subsequent second film, The Flock. Just as a reminder, the third film, Ghost, is live right now on Kickstarter. And if you want, you can head on over there and donate whatever amount of money you want to help fund this new film. And I'll leave the link for that down in the description. Until next time, y'all keep being the amazing people y'all are.